Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. <clears throat> Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Rob Spikestra. I'm the pastor of discipleship, and we are in a series over the summer called the Summer of Psalms. Last week, we finished with the introduction to the Psalms by looking at Psalm 2. Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to this unique book, the only book dedicated solely to Hebrew poetry. It is a unique book in that it is the only one also which has an editor, an editor who took uh, uh, probably hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of Psalms, but by the by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, gathered these psalms together so that we have 150 and that they have been compiled in such a way that they are placed in order to really tell a story. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they do something else with regards to an introduction, which any good introduction does, and it, that is it gives themes that we'll be seeing throughout the psalms. And so Psalm 1 introduce the overall theme that if you're going to be blessed in this life, that is, if you're going to live a happy life, crucial is the written word of God. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that you do, you prosper. Not that finite finkel financial prosperity per se, but a prosperous soul. But if you reject God's word, Psalm 1 tells us that you will be like chaff that the wind drives away. You will be swayed by every thought and cultural uh, moment, cultural whim. You will be moved by every one of those. And so we have a well-established fruitful tree in all seasons versus chaff. In the second part of the introduction of the Psalms, Psalm 2, we also discovered that while humanity is born into a state of rebellion, God reacts to our rebellion in a very surprising way, and that is that he puts forth a king, one whom he has anointed to be the one who will be the king of the universe. He puts him forth, and he does this first surprising thing, and that is within our rebellion, that king actually comes to the earth, takes on our sin, and dies on the cross so that we do not have to receive God's wrath, but rather he received God's wrath on our behalf. A king who, if you reject that savior, you reject that redeemer, you reject that rock, one day will return and his wrath will be upon all those who reject, reject him. And so Psalm 1 uh, begins with, blessed is a man or woman, so the Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. God in giving his written word and living word is out for our happiness. 
So with those major themes, it ought not surprise us that as we, that we come relatively quickly in the first book of the Psalms, which is Psalms 1 through 41, we come quickly to a psalm that goes deeper into the theme of the written word, Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19 reflects the beauty and splendor of Hebrew poetry in its use of parallelisms, use of analogy, and its easy-to-follow division. Arthur Weiser, in his commentary, wrote, With powerful and metaphorical language, the psalmist is raised to the status of a great poet who stimulated the creative works of such eminent men as Goethe, Haydn, and Beethoven. More recent commentator, Peter Craigie, said, the psalm combines the most beautiful poetry with some of the most profound of biblical theology. And C.S. Lewis writes, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And part of C.S. Lewis's praise is in its simple but memorable structure. The first six verses are about nature, and then the next five verses about the law, and the last four of a personal prayer, a fairly simple, rememberable uh, division. Or another way of putting it, David is awed by God's self-revelation, first seen in creation, verses one through six, then in the written word, verses seven through 11, and then he turns his attention to a response to that revelation, verses 12 through 14. Now, before we look into um, this psalm, let me explain why this is important, especially for us as parents whose children are being catechized by a culture that is increasingly aggressive in its rebellion against God's Word. Last week, I read an opinion piece in World Magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with World Magazine, but that's a magazine that provides a Christian worldview in terms of all the news that we receive. World Magazine, it's titled, here's the title of the opinion piece, When Activist Children Disciple Their Parents. Let me just read a little bit to you. Begins this way. Sparks fly in Christian homes these days as parents and adolescents argue with one another. Such a phenomena is not new. Most adults can recount going through a period of conflict and testing boundaries with their parents. But this particular collision of wills is not the -the run-of-the-mill tussles over independence or disobedience. No, this dispute concerns the child's LGBTQ affirmation and the parent's disapproval of said affirmation because of their Christian beliefs. The article continues. These disputes are increasing in Christian families. There is no reason to believe that they're going to stop soon, but there is a greater concern in this. Through these collisions, many children actually convert their Christian parents into LGBTQ affirming allies. And an inverted discipleship pattern occurs between the adolescent and young adult children who should be influenced by their parents' instructions and leadership, but instead end up instructing their parents. The article gives several reasons why this is happening, but the one that is pertinent for our time in Psalms 19 is this. Right? Another factor is the lack of discipleship that Christian parents provide for their children. They often outsource discipleship of children to the church for a few hours of a week, if that, and parents cross their fingers that it will stick. These two components set the stage for the collision. The other factors in this cauldron of disaster is the child's formation by something or someone other than the parents. It may be authorities at school, friends, social media, or celebrities, but everyone is being catechized by someone. If it isn't specifically Christian catechists, it is the catechist by something or someone else. The culture culture aggressively promotes LGBTQ affirmation, especially among adolescents. Activists and allies work hard to develop them into allies committed to the long game. Once children become allies, which gives them community, a cause, and the precious social acceptance they crave, the conflict with parents begins. And finally, they write, how does this tension get resolved? 
Well, many Christian parents attempt to repair the conflict by dropping their protest and settling for a truce. But some go beyond a ceasefire and change sides, embracing the ideology for themselves. Why? Not through their child's persuasive reasoning, but as a desperate attempt to build a bridge for establishing a relationship with them, they become allies together. The tension and conflict dissipate, but so does their ability to lead their adolescent in the way of truth. We are living in a culture which is increasingly hostile to God's kingdom. It is increasingly overt in its attempts to throw off the shackles, as it's seen, of God's word. So we must personally know God's word. We must do the hard work of understanding how it speaks to our cultural moments. We must discipline our children, disciple our children in God's, in God's ways, for if we don't, the world will. The word is more than sufficient and powerful to shape our minds to know truth, but more importantly, to shape our hearts to love the God of truth. And so we come to Psalm 19. So let's pray and ask for help. So thank you, Father. You're not surprised by the cultural moment. You're not surprised by the rebellion. You're not surprised by how overt it has become. You're not surprised, Father, by how it is attempting to disciple our ourselves, our children, into rebels against you and your good and gracious way. So we thank you, Father, that you've given us your word, and so our prayer is that as we come to this psalm, for some of us familiar psalm, we pray that you would again uh, help us to see it new, help us to see it fresh, help us to see it in such a way that it begins to shape our love, not of it, ultimately, but Father, a love of you. And so we would pray, do what only you can do, and that is that you would continue to change our hearts more and more into the image of your Son. We are at your mercy right now. And that is good. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's look at how David focuses our attention, first of all, on how God reveals himself in nature. Primarily, he focuses on the revelation of the night skies. So we see that verses one through the first part of verse four. And then, uh, then the most prominent feature of the sky itself, that is the sun, uh, that's verses four, four, second part through verse six. So begin beginning in verse one. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, and nor are, there, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out all, through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In, in these parallel phrases, we are to equate heavens and the sky as declaring or proclaiming what? Well, the glory of God and his handiwork. David is saying here, when you see his handiwork, you see his glory. Now, when I, I think of handiwork, I, you know, I think of uh, those who are, um, I don't know, uh, uh, crocheters or maybe knitters or maybe, maybe uh, that w those people who you know, can do work with wood, uh, you begin to think about those who are skilled craftsmen. And so as we look at uh, their handiwork, as we look at what they have built, what, we learn something about that actual person. And so God is saying the same to us, that we learn something about him as we learn about his, his handiwork. Now, imagine what you would have seen 1000 BC when this psalm was written. You have to use your imagination because most of us live in the city. <laughs> and if you live in the city, you might see a star or you might see a few stars. You may not see any stars, but if you move out to the suburbs, you might see a few stars. Perhaps you might see a constellation or two. You might even go out into the countryside and then you begin to see a lot of constellations. But imagine what it must have been like when there is simply no light whatsoever. A strange thing happens when that occurs, and that is that you no longer see the constellations. Because of all the stars, it's hard to actually see them. 
You are so overwhelmed with the vastness of the sky, the vastness of the galaxy that we live in, the vastness of the galaxies, that for a while it takes a little bit of time to actually begin to see those constellations that perhaps you have seen maybe in the countryside. The Apostle Paul, who was impacted by, greatly by the Psalms, and we know this by the number of Psalms that he used, that he quoted within his letters, he wrote in Romans 1.20, uh, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And now, I, uh, Paul, Paul was using a ridiculous statement there. I don't know if you caught it. Um, he says... If you look into the night sky, you see the invisible attributes of God, and he says, you see them because they're clearly seen. The invisible, the invisible attributes of God, he says, what you can't see, you can see. And that is, you can see, as the psalmist tells us, in his handiwork, in the work of his, of his hands. And so, so true of craftsmen's here so we can learn something about him when we look at his handiwork in the night sky. At minimum, in the vastness of the stars, we, along with Paul, learn that he is great. Paul calls it his eternal power. The declaration of his greatness is being made 24-7. Verse 2, day to day, Pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. David is thinking about the daily rhythms of the sun rising and setting and the moon replacing the sun at night. The daily rhythm of creation reveals knowledge and it reveals something else. Knowledge is not just the, that there is a creator of God, but that in his knowledge he is like the stars. He is vast and that he is one who is wise. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31 in its own poetry, shows that behind all the wonders of the world, we live in God's wisdom. That God's wisdom existed even before creation. And you'll not, you won't note the word wisdom in this, but let's, uh, let's just read it here. Uh, uh, Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, and when there was no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth and its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, and when he made firm the skies above, and when he established the fountains of the deep, and when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, and when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Creation reveals have a wise God, reveals his wisdom. Creation is so saturated with wisdom that when examined, it drips out. As verse one, it declares, it proclaims, yet it is silent. It's silent speech. See, verse three, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, how appropriate that is that the declaration uh, of the heavens doesn't have audible words for, we'd have to ask the question, which of the thousands of languages would we choose to declare the glory of God? Well, most of us Americans would say English, right? And we says, no. No, we, we, need a, we need a language that every person can understand. So the declaration of the heavens is a language of sight. There is no language barrier there. And nor are there geographical barriers. Look at verse 4. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world so that whether you live in the deepest jungles of the Amazon and are illiterate or you walk in the halls of Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard, the language of the heavens may be understood by every willing heart. The speech of the heavens is seen 
wherever man lives. And the beauty, the beauty of this is, is that without geographical uh, uh, barriers or without this language barriers, wherever our children go, wherever we take them, in, in whatever they eventually study, if they go into geology or astronomy or botany or chemistry or biology, wherever they go, the language of the glory of the greatness of God is found there. And so we can direct them, we can show them, we can help them see that there is a wise man, there's a wise God, sorry, a wise person. There is wisdom that's behind here, that there is a master craftsman, and his name is God. He is great. That's what creation shows us. We have a great God. Well, David then turns his attention to the most prominent feature of the day, the sun, middle of verse 4, in them, the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun. The, the ceiling of the tent is a beautiful blue sky. Uh, the sun is captured within this tent to give warmth and illumination, light. But the sun is not passionless. See, David likens the sun to a bridegroom, verse 5. The sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, I have no idea what happens in a, um, in, in, with, with the bridesmaids, you know, before weddings. I have no idea what's going on. Uh, but I've been a groom. Uh, I've been a groomsman. I have uh, been a father of a groom, two, two grooms. Um, and I've done uh, probably about 200 weddings. I've been there. All the time, without, without question, over the years, there's something pretty consistent that happens within, uh, with, the, with the groomsmen before the wedding. There's a little bit of hyping up going on. There, there's a little bit of fear and trembling and concern moving into this next step of called well, uh, marriage, and so uh, in there, there's a, there's a little bit of fun and games going on because what is going on, they're hyping each other up in terms of what they're about to do so that the bridegroom with his finest, he goes out with his joyous energy in his step, and often I've heard it, this phrase go, let's do it, you know. Well, I think that's how David is likening the sun on its daily course. He, he continues he says the sun's like a strong man, or other versions, I think, light, uh, rightly translated a champion, and it runs its course with joy. See, the joy comes out of the fact that the sun uh, enters every day with a purpose. It runs every day, goes every day with a task that God has given it, and not only does it have a task, but it is adequately, appropriately equipped for that task. So it goes into the task, it knows what its purpose is, it goes through that purpose, having everything it needs to accomplish that purpose so that there is great joy in actually doing what God has called it to do. And like the stars of the sky, its presence cannot be missed. Verse 6, it says, Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Bottom line, everyone gets the memo. God is great. Now, while the language of the skies does not have any linguistic or geographical barriers, it's not enough to draw people to him. Matter of fact, in the way that the fall has affected our very beings, when those who are fallen, sinful, when they see the greatness, rather than running towards the greatness, we want to run from the greatness. We want to go into rebellion. So that we are like what those rebels' mantra was that we saw last week, let us cast their gods, bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. We resent this great God. 
for it's not about us. So whether we direct our eyes towards the sky or go deep into the human body and we see the intellect and wisdom of the Creator, we are incapable of coming to the correct conclusion. We are intellectual fools. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When the Bible speaks of a fool, it is not focusing on intellectual capabilities. Rather, when the Bible speaks of fools, it's talking about spiritual capabilities. So that you can read or hear from individuals who have great academic and life accomplishments and yet who come to the conclusion in all of that academia, in all of those accomplishments, they come to the end of it apart from Christ, they come to the end of it and say, there is no God. I have followed over the years a student who was in my first church back in Fremont, Nebraska. She was, I believe, probably a junior higher at the time. Um, I followed her career via Facebook um, for two reasons. First, she is an accomplished runner, um, so accomplished that she trained and entered into the Olympic trials for uh, the marathon to get into the, get into the Olympics to represent the United States. She didn't make it until anyway, being in the trials in the marathon is an accomplishment of itself. But then secondly, she was a student who was very thoughtful and her academics were good enough in high school that she was accepted into and graduated from Princeton University. Last week, she posted her protest of the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, the protest, I mean, the, the decision to send the issue back down to the states and ultimately to us, the people. And I just, I, I'm trying to listen in, I want to attempt to understand those who are on the other side of the argument, those who actually see that abortion is virtuous and an, a good moral ethical decision. And so she'd be a good representative of this, and so this is what she wrote on her Facebook page. She said this, abortion is healthcare. My ability to choose when and if I have a child is fundamental to my rights as a human being. Forced birth is wrong. I'm grateful that I had the choice to decide when, when and if I had a baby. Control over my reproduction allowed me to pursue an education, a career, relationships, and deeply fulfilling hobbies. Choosing when and if I had a child gave me the space and time to be in an emotional, and then she puts in parentheses, thank you, therapy, to be in an emotional and financial place where I can be the mother that I want to be. These words and are, these were and are my choices, and I am entitled to them. Now, there are a number of things that I could question, but I want to, I want to get to these two questions. Statements like, in her Facebook page, my rights as a human being, or forced birth is wrong, statements like that assume some kind of standard, of which is implicit in her post, but not explicit. She doesn't tell us what her standard is. So the question is, why does she believe it is her right as a human being? And secondly, what is her standard for right and wrong? Well, her post is consistent with her theology. Everyone's a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. We all believe something about God. Even if we believe there is no God, thus we are that God, that determines the right and wrong of significant matters. And so her standard is herself. She would say, there is no God, so she is God. She is her greatest good unto herself. Now, use, I use this, her as an example because I know she is a delightful, intelligent, accomplished woman. And I could easily talk to her, and we could have great conversations. Yet, she has drawn the wrong conclusions. From all of her 
accomplishments, from all of her academic studies of the world around her. See, in, in our fallenness, the more we pursue knowledge, the more we are filled with fear. And the longer the quest for knowledge, the more we are profoundly ignorant. It's not as if we can't or don't make amazing discoveries. It is that when we make these discoveries, we come to the wrong conclusions of their importance because we reject a creator. We fail to understand thus our purpose, and because we fail to understand our purpose, we trip all over ourselves in this life. Calvin, he, he describes our fallen experience of this world like this. He wrote, we are like a traveler passing through a field at night who in a momentary lightning flash sees far and wide, but the sight vanishes so swiftly that we're plunged again into the darkness of the night before we can take even a step let alone be directed on our way by its help. See, what we need is we need the spiritual equivalent of the illuminating, warming light of the physical sun. We need a word from God. God reveals himself in his word, verses 7 through 11. Look at that. Look at uh, verse yeah, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward." Now, the first thing I want you to see there in verses uh, six and seven, uh, sorry, seven and eight is the use of the covenant name. See, Yahweh was completely, the name Yahweh was completely absent in the first six verses, but conspicuously present six times in verses, sorry, nine and 10. No, seven and eight, sorry, and nine and 10. See, creation does not reveal this. Creation does not reveal the personal nature of the almighty God of the universe. You will not, not know by creation, not by looking out at the stars, not by studying astronomy or physics or biology or chemistry, that God wants to personally relate to humanity. See, remember our introductory Psalms, Psalm 2, God in response to a rebellion he promises a way of escape from his rightful wrath for rejecting him as king, and we call this the covenant of grace. We saw that last week. The God who was, the God who is, the God who will be, the self-existent one, that's what Yahweh means. I was, I am, I will be. The self-existent one wants to be in relationship with those who rely on him for our very existence. And the reality is, this reality is introduced and learned through the very first phrase there that we have of the synonyms for God's word, the law of the Lord, which literally was the Torah, we, the word there in Hebrew is Torah. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, introduces us to, the, to God's covenant of grace. In the Torah, we, we find uh, this stunning pursuit. He, he pursues Adam and Eve in their rebellion. He pursues a, a man who's not even in any way looking for him, Abraham. He, he pursues a people who in, uh, their, in, in, their, in them as a nation, they're in slavery, and they don't even know his name. And so the rest of Scripture continues to reveal this covenantal nature of God. Thus, the synonyms for the law of the Lord are not to be understood primarily as kind of separate entities, although you can study them that way, but rather we can do it this way. We can understand them comprehensively. In other words, he's saying here that all of Scripture, all of the different genres, all of the different books, these are all saying this thing, and that is that all of them are beneficial to us in terms of our relationship with this creator God who is so great, so that that all the benefits of natural revelation that is with us 24-7, he says, if those are good, can you just imagine how good the benefits are of my, my spoken word? 
And so poetically, David begins a cadence of expressing quality and then resultant benefits. So he starts with, it is perfect, without flaw. <laughs> and, and it breathes life. It breathes life into something that has no life. Paul tells us later, he says that we are dead in our sin, and yet the gospel revives, brings life, spiritual life. Second characteristic is that the testimony of the Lord is sure, <laughs> and notice it's the testimony is about the Lord. In our fullness, we always make gods in our own images. Left to ourselves, we shape our thoughts about who God is, we shape our thoughts about how he acts, and we do it all around the story of our own lives. And so we need God's testimony. We need God to tell us what he really is like and what he really does. And when we do that, he says it is sure. In other words, he's trying to build into us a sense of confidence that if we come to God's word and we set aside our thinking of how God should be and how he should act, and we begin to just accept what he has for us, we can be sure that we'll know who this living God is, this creator of whom we want to run from. He says, you need to know what I'm really like in order that you run to me. It makes wise the simple. That's good news for me. Good news for a lot of us here, I'm fairly simple. I'm fairly simple in the way that I think about the world, and most of us here are not going to be writing any books advancing the world of knowledge. Be comforted. God is not looking for you to do so. <laughs> Wisdom comes in just simply receiving his testimony. And yet, look, the simple are wiser than the greatest thinkers and theologians of our day because the simple submit to God's testimony about himself. Verse 8, precepts of the Lord are right. There is a moral clarity about God's word found nowhere else. And the first moral truth that we must come to grips with and the first moral truth we need to come to grips with is the immorality of rejecting the Creator and exchanging Him for lesser things called the creation. That is immoral. Immoral that we reject the Holy God for anything else in world that we would take, we who have absolute existence dependent upon this self-existent one who, who was, is, and will be, who is self-existent, has no end and no beginning, that somehow we would think that we were better than him. That's immoral. And when we come to the grips of that truth and, re, and confess it and repent of it, believing that God really is the only good then all things begin to fall in place, and the result is our, did you see there? It is our joy. God's word rejoices the heart. When the heart is right with God, there's joy. When we call right and wrong according to his precepts, we live in joy. And then finally, the commandment of the Lord is pure, and the word pure can be translated radiant, and in the Hebrew, many times this word, Hebrew word, is connected with the actual sun. So the idea is that, that it is a brilliant light. So the commandment of the Lord is like a brilliant light, thus the benefit God commands, uh, God's commands enlighten the eyes. It, it lights our way. It cures the natural blindness of our souls. It enables us to be more and more discerning. But look at what happens in verse 9. David breaks the cadence. David, the master poet, he breaks the pattern. So, so that if you kind of understand poetry, you're kind of doing this kind of a thing, you're kind of going through a cadence, and all of a sudden he abruptly changes it with this. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Oh, wait a minute, the fear of the Lord. That doesn't seem to fit with the other synonyms of God's word. So why the change? 
Because David knows the tendency of the heart of man. He knows that we can even make the knowledge of, the study of, the memorization of the word of God into an idol. The aim of the revealed will of God is not an accumulation of theological facts. It is not simply a collection of verses that are memorized. It is not my ability to become a Bible thug, and it is not about creating pious habits or outward displays of reverence or even for mere morality. See, he's taking the word of God, all these these synonyms for the word of God, and he said, this fear of the Lord is so, the fear of Yahweh is, is so interconnected that you can pretty much call them the same thing. That is, that the word of God should produce this effect, and that effect is, it is the fear of Yahweh. So rather than taking it for an idol, we are to take God's word as to grow in a godly fear of him. A godly fear, you know, is a true knowledge of self that I'm in rebellion against the creator of the universe and that in the face of his rightful fury, he is my redeemer. That was what we looked at last week, Psalm 2. He is both great, creation tells us that, and he is gracious, the living word tells us that. That rather than running from him in an ungodly fear, I run to him. John Bunyan, in his treatise on the fear of the Lord, he wrote, oh, that a great God should be a good God, a good God to an unworthy, to an undeserving, and to a people that continually do what they can to provoke the eyes of his glory. This should make us tremble. There's nothing in heaven or earth that can so awe the heart as the grace of God. Tis that which makes a man fear. Tis that which makes a man tremble. Tis that which makes a man bow and bend and break to pieces. Nothing has that majesty and commanding greatness in and upon the hearts of the sons of men as the grace of God. So that the fact of the word of God is that I grow in a godly fear of him, that I, Psalm 211, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And this fear of him, in our passage says, it is clean. That is, it cleanses. It cleanses out the love of sin and changes our heart's inclinations so that we agree the rules of the Lord are true and they are righteous altogether. So the fear of the Lord gets at the very grain of the heart that drives behavior even more than gold. And what all the gold could buy, or if that doesn't drive you, how about dessert? More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. What's he doing there? He is helping us to think about our desires. What do we desire? You can think of the greatest desires. You can think of all that the wealth could buy. If that is moving you, or if if it's more about your appetite, your physical appetite, think of the greatest thing that that you could eat. And you said, if you could have that, or if you could have the word of God and what it does, which brings you into the fear of God, you would say, oh, yeah, the fear of God, that's what I want. That's how great his word is who points us to how great our Redeemer is. It changes our very desires. You struggling with some kind of sin in your life, some kind of um, continued wrestling with it, you want to get, get freed from that? You get freed from that by finding a greater desire, and that's God. Grow in understanding of who he is and what he's done, how he is and how he acts, that will kill lesser desires. God is calling us into a relationship that involves shaping our desires, our heart, so that we actually despise, not merely renounce the sins we once cherished and treasure the God we once abhorred. See, discipleship is education. 
Discipleship, discipling, educating, they're the same thing. They're shaping. In the end, when we are educating, we are shaping. We're shaping our three things. Shaping our heads, getting more understanding. We're shaping our hands, we're learning what is good, moral. But ultimately, we're shaping hearts, what is beautiful. And so as we're thinking about discipleship or we're thinking about, you can, use, you can inter- return it with, with education, those three things are going on. And so our world is educating. And God is wanting us to be educated. He wants to disciple us into that which is true, that which is good, but also that which is beautiful. Because the beauty changes the heart. So what is our response to, be, to, to God's revelations? Well, here's our response. First of all, our response is humility. See, look at that first phrase of verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Uh, just as nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, and even as the voice of the star speaks to the end of the world, so God's word in all of its perfections does the same thing, and it penetrates and examines the heart of man. So that Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him in whom we must give accounts. And so the, the God who sees all, it takes his word, and then he says he applies it to our lives, and he discerns truly what is right and wrong about us, truly what, where our problems are. David was painfully aware of his own ability to deceive himself, so that living in this flesh, we are profoundly self-deceived. And so that ludicrous picture that Jesus has given, it's not unusual that we're walking around with a log in our eyes as we're trying to take out a splinter in somebody else's eye. That's us. Who can discern truly what's going on? Well, Psalm 139, in describing the intimacy of knowledge that God has each one of us, he knows the words are going to come out of our mouth before they come out. He knows when we sit down. He knows when we stand up. We don't even think about those things. He knows them. But in that psalm, he also says that you discern my thoughts from afar. So there should be the first response is humility. Humility. Second response, faith. Faith in God's means of grace. See, look at what he prays. He says, declare me. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. See, the the problem of not knowing what the problem is, of not being able to truly discern what my ultimate issues are, not to truly understand my soul is, I'm lost unless I have a Savior in whom I can cry out to in faith, cry out to, to the grace and say, do this for me, declare me innocent from what I don't know. See, David's prayer finds its hope in the sacrificial system, a sacrificial system that ultimately points to the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. So that believers in Jesus Christ are called to confess their sins. 1 John 1, 9, you're probably very familiar. But our forgiveness is not based on our ability to name them all. We confess that which God specifically convicts, and we confess in general all other sins, knowing that the declaration of our innocence is based upon uh, Christ's innocence being imputed to our account. And so, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We cry out to him. That's what we do. Third response, we watch ourselves and pray for God's help. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Presumption sins are willful sins. These are sins attributed to, typically attributed to the arrogant who scoff in the face of God and his law. And yet, God's people, David recognizes, his servants can lose their spiritual minds at times. 
and willfully sin. There ought to be a soberness to our walk in Christ. Thus David writes, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We don't know what he had in mind here regarding the great, great transgression, but to identify it as a possibility, David reveals a sober and humble heart. He knew he was what he was capable of in his flesh of great sin. We don't know when this psalm got written. Was it before Bathsheba or after Bathsheba? and murder, and lying. Galatians 6, didn't put it up on the screen for you, but let me read it to you. I was reminded of it this morning. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is you who have the walking in the spirit, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, tempted to sin in your own way. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Humility, faith in God's gracious means, watch ourselves and pray Look how David ends our psalm. The psalm begins with the heavens, and it ends now with him who, whose glory fills the heavens and earth. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. He's asking this. He's asking that he might join the heavens in their silent voice with his voice. He is praying that he might speak of, that he might sing of, that he might even shout of God's power and goodness and grace. His prayer is that what his lips say, his heart might concur, that he wouldn't be a hypocrite in what's coming out of his voice, but rather he would, he would, his heart would be true to God. So he prays not only out of an ungodly fear of, of, he does not pray out of an ungodly fear of judgment, but out of a godly fear of knowing that the great God of the universe has made a covenant to be his rock and his redeemer. So that the word, it is more, more than sufficient and powerful to not only shape our minds, but also to shape our hearts and to be people who have been invited in now to give praise with our mouths with the rest of creation, which is praising him just by us looking at it. That's remarkable. God calling us to praise the greatest rather than the lesser things of this world. Father, please help us. Um, this is our prayer, Father. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. And we know, Father, ultimately that acceptance comes at the cost of your son, that you, Yahweh, our God, second person of the son, came, took our sins in his body, so as we take this bread, we're reminded of that again, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and so as we take this cup, we're reminded of that again, that he would be our rock and our redeemer, so that, Father, we can do something like the son. We can we can step out into the day with a purpose, with a great purpose, to honor you with our lives, and you are enabling us, giving us all that we need to do that. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.